And our passage this morning is taken from Romans chapter 4. We're going to do all of chapter 4 this morning, all 25 verses. Romans chapter 4, and as you're turning there, young Christians, young theologians, let's start with you. I want you to listen very carefully for the word that's used most often in this chapter. What word is repeated more than any other? You can maybe hear it as we read through it, or you can look in your own Bible or in mom's Bible, dad's Bible, and circle the word that appears the most, but find the word that's repeated more than any other in this chapter. And then later today, later this afternoon, I want you to talk at home with your family. And the question I want you to answer is, what's this chapter really about? You found the word that's most used in the chapter, but what's it really about? See what you can find. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, given through Paul, the apostle, and the letter writer. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No distrust made him waver concerning the promise promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And O Lord our God, we ask that You will work in us so that the Father may be glorified and that we can enjoy the redemption of Jesus the Son And that we can be sanctified in His Spirit as you fill us with your gospel and make it evident. Do all of these things with us and we will give you thanks. We ask it all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit as well. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, it felt like a long chapter. All in all, it wasn't very long. But in Paul's characteristic style and the way he kind of stacks up his argument, it seems to go on for a bit. But this chapter really gets at the heart of it. This chapter showcases my favorite theological topic, the one that really lights me up, the one that I'm most excited about more than any other. But I think that topic gets lost in the chapter. It's It's all but covered up. And maybe it's because we're so easily distracted. And maybe it's because we actually prefer to be distracted. Maybe it's because we're so used to having frivolous things presented to us as the most important things. Maybe it's because we're used to being sold a bunch of stuff we don't actually need, like fuller lashes and redder lips and better abs, and softer toilet paper, and self-cleaning appliances, and low-calorie beer. None of which we need. But we actually like being sold all of that stuff. So when someone actually presents us with what we truly need, we're offended. The television show that's getting the most critical acclaim and attention right now is a show called Mad Men. It's about a Madison Avenue advertising agency at the height of the advertising boom in the early 1960s. It's a very stylish period piece. Now look, here's my disclaimer before I go any farther. I don't actually watch the show. So if you want a good rundown of what the show's all about, you have to talk to Aaron Morris or Chad Scruggs. They're the resident experts. As usual, our pastors can tell us what we should be watching and what we should be listening to. Beyond that, it's a crapshoot, but they can tell you at least that. They'll tell you all about the show if you want to hear about it. I only know enough about it that I can get away with this this morning. But in the pilot episode, the main character... Don Draper and the other ad executives are meeting with the executives of the Lucky Strike Cigarette Corporation. And they're trying to pitch an ad campaign that will distract the public's attention away from new reports that smoking is linked to cancer. 
The main character, Don Draper, this rackishly handsome, intelligent, uber-cool wonder kid of the advertising world, has nothing, nothing to present the potential clients. He's drawn a blank. Uncharacteristically, he fumbles with his notes. He searches for something to present, and he comes up with an appalling blank. And the other ad men in the room don't have anything impressive to offer the Lucky Strike people either. So the prospective clients get up from the boardroom table and they're leaving when Don Draper saves the moment with a flash of genius. And off the cuff, he comes up with a campaign. Now the campaign itself isn't important. It's just a MacGuffin. A MacGuffin is a plot device that was really popularized by Alfred Hitchcock. It's this thing that seems to be important, but it has no meaning of its own. It only serves to move the plot along. But what is important is Don Draper's closing boardroom monologue. And he says to the clients, You have to understand, gentlemen, that advertising is based on one thing. Happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. Happiness is freedom from fear. Happiness is a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing, you're okay. That's the brilliance of the show, I think. What defines us as Americans is the way we consume Not ideals, not values, not patriotic montages with flags waving in the background. We are Americans because we think that even in a recession, we can buy our way out of trouble and we can buy our way into happiness. And whatever you think you need to be happy, we're selling it, Don Draper says, with a wry smile. And we believe him. And we need to believe Paul instead. Because Paul cuts in on Don Draper and says, this guy's good. Very good. And he's right to a point. He can show you the brokenness of your heart, but he can't heal your broken heart. And besides... When has the living God who made everything, the living God who made you, when has that God ever asked you what you think you need to be happy? And that should stop us all short. Has God ever asked us what we need for happiness? Never. And He never will. He doesn't try to distract us by selling us happy MacGuffins. He never tries to deal to us a cheap happiness because he has divine happiness to give. He has what we need. Now, if I were to ask you what this chapter is about, what one word summary would you use? Most of us would say faith. This chapter isn't very unlike all the other chapters that have preceded it. This chapter, just like the previous three chapters, holds out to us faith against works. And as usual, faith wins. In fact, the word faith is used more than any other word in the entire chapter, 11 times. Belief 
or believing is a distant second. Four times righteousness is about the same. But none of these is really the proper subject of this section of the letter. This chapter is about what's behind the faith and belief we're called to. This chapter is about what captures and holds our faith and belief. This chapter is about resurrection. It's in verse 17. God is called the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Resurrection. It's in verse 19. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. An elderly couple getting ready for the nursing home and they're painting the nursery? Resurrection. It's at the very end of the passage in verse 25. God raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Ha! You're justified because Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't make any sense that God would justify dead things, declare to be righteous dead things. Really what Paul is showing to us is that We needed the one who went all the way under the power of death and then came all the way back out of the power of death to carry us all the way into reconciliation to God. Or we could reach all the way back into the previous chapter at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the resurrection shows Jesus never fell short of God's glory. And he's the one who alone can raise us back into God's glory. Resurrection, Paul is arguing to us. And it's hinted, it's whispered, but it's still there in verse 7. From the lips of King David, the shameful sinner. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Guilty men... And women not counted as sinners? Resurrection, Paul is saying. The passage is about resurrection. And you might still have a hard time with that since faith is so large a part of the passage and since it's so prominent in this chapter. But remember, faith doesn't exist on its own. It's always attached to something. And we aren't in love with faith. We exercise faith in order to get at something else. We have faith because God has given to us something to believe in. Namely, His promise. His promise of salvation. Which, according to what Paul gives us here, is accomplished through resurrection. Overpowering the death curse of sin. Which, by the way, is not the same as cheating death. Moving as close to death as you can possibly get and then getting away just in the nick of time. Nearly throwing yourself all the way into death and then throwing yourself clear again before it steamrolls you. Like 
Evil Knievel in all of his daredevil stunts. I grew up watching him on television, this motorcycle-riding self-promoter who was decked out in a red, white, and blue jumpsuit with a cape, jumping buses and monuments and geographical hazards and anything else he could think to ride his motorcycle over. His first nationally publicized jump was on New Year's Eve day in 1967. He was going to jump the fountains at Caesar's Palace. 15,000 people came out to watch the jump. Millions more watched by television later. So he started his bike, and the crowd cheered, and radio commentators spoke into their microphones, and bulbs flashed, and cameras rolled, and he opened the throttle, and hit the ramp, and soared over the fountain, and missed the landing, and broke nearly every bone in his body. And he was in the hospital for 29 days, in and out of death, touch and go with death, the whole time. But on the 30th day, he limped out of the ward, and he blinked into the rolling cameras, and he vowed that his next jump would be over the Grand Canyon. Foolish. Nonsense. Frustrating death like that It means only that for no good reason you've lived for one more day, but you haven't gained a mastery over death. You haven't taken death's strength away from it. You've just postponed the inevitable claim that death will make on you. But resurrection is different. Resurrection means Jesus has given himself all the way into the rule of death, and then by his own righteous strength and will, he broke out of death's rule and put death under his rule so that we will never be ruled by it. Resurrection means that Jesus submitted himself to the power of death, and then on the third day he submitted death to his own power by rising out of it, by rising over it, so that we would never have to submit to death. Resurrection isn't getting away with something, it's the taking away of something. And the gospel promise to us is, you shall surely not die, only this time it isn't hissed in lies from the lips of a snake hanging from a tree. It's sung to us by a Savior who has walked out of a tomb to take death's authority away from it and thereby to justify us. You shall not surely die, Jesus sings, standing in the tomb's open door, because I'm not pleased to let you die. I'd rather that you live with me. So, Jesus came in flesh because I need to be resurrected in my flesh. And someday, I'll live in flawless, sinless, resurrected flesh. But even now, I need to feel the strength of resurrection at work in my flesh. And Jesus died on a cross because I need to be resurrected from the cross-shaped pains of my sin and the cross-shaped wrath of God for my sin. 
And Jesus vacated the tomb because I need to be resurrected in my heart. I need to leave my old life behind. The broken patterns, the destructive patterns of thought and emotion and will and action. But I can't break myself out of my tomb. The one that I carved with my own hands from the inside. I can't leave death behind on my own. I don't have the strength for it. I don't have the honesty for it. The wisdom and understanding to see the slyness and totality of death. I don't have the purity to walk away from it. But Jesus does. He rose to continually bring me along in resurrection behind Him. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Paul, the doctrinal letter writer, is that when God saves sinners, He does it by resurrection. When God saves sinners, it is a resurrection. The good news is, to save dead sinners, Jesus comes for us with resurrection. But if resurrection is so important to this passage, then why is Paul so vocal about faith? He mentions it 11 times in this chapter alone. It's not nothing. I think the connection between faith and resurrection is obvious, but apparently it isn't because a surprising number of commentators and theologians and pastors, when they treat chapter 4, they talk only about faith and very little about the resurrection itself. I think the connection is so obvious, we could put it this simply. Faith is our doorway to the resurrection. None of us can resurrect ourselves. None of us can overcome our own deadness. Remember, resurrection is not a frustrating of death. It's throwing it off. It's pushing it to the side. It's taking up life that is no longer susceptible to death. Doesn't bow down to it. Doesn't lie down for it. But no corpse can realive itself. And no cadaver can will to uncadaver itself. And no heart dead in sin can unbury itself, exhume itself from its own grave, and grant to itself a disposition to walk in life. Or let's say it the way Paul has been saying it. We can't work our way into resurrection. All our works with all their strain and effort and exertion can't bring us into resurrection. And we can't law ourselves into resurrection. The law wasn't given to make dead things alive. The law shows dead things their deadness. And the law shows live things the liveness that they've been given. But the law never raises the dead. Jesus raises the dead. That's why we're told in verse 16... This promise of resurrection, it's a matter of grace. Or it's a divinely given, extravagant gift. What is not ours by right. What is not ours by claim or demand. A dead thing has no constitutional right. No self-evident right to life. That's why it's dead. So we must receive faith. But why? 
Why must we receive faith from the Father? Why must we give up on works and exercise faith that says, I'm dead in my sin and I'm dead in my ability to change myself and I'm stuck in my deadness. Dead I remain unless I am raised. Why faith like that? Because Jesus has resurrection to give And faith is the way He has chosen to raise us. Because faith is how He gives life to the dead. Because faith is how He calls into existence the things that did not exist. Because faith is how there is forgiveness for lawless deeds and covering for awful, terrible sins with our fingerprints and our traces stamped all over them. Because we can no more give birth to righteousness in ourselves than an old man and an old woman with parts shriveled up and dry as kindling could give birth to a baby on their own. Because... Faith is what keeps us from illusion and it instructs us that righteousness can only be put upon us and only be born within us by a truly righteous God who is willing to reach out for us. It's faith and it must be faith because the promise always glorifies the one who makes the promise and bestows the promise and keeps the promise, but it never glorifies the ones who are swept up into the promise. It's faith because faith reminds us we are not gods. We are children, chosen and adopted in love by the Father. We are worshipers who are thrilled with the beauty and the redemption of Jesus the Savior. We are disciples persevering and fighting on through His Spirit. But none of that has come through our self-will and our self-determination. It's faith because Jesus has resurrection to give. But it's His to give. And it's only ours to wear and to enjoy and to fill up. And He has chosen to raise us through faith. So does anybody still have any questions about faith, Paul asks? Nobody? Nobody wants to ask anything about faith. Good then believe, believe in Jesus the risen and the door to resurrection will swing graciously wide to you. This means if all this is true and if we've gotten this right, that faith will always feel like resurrection. How will you know if you're exercising and living by faith? You'll know because it will feel like coming out of the dead. You'll know because it will feel like walking out of your tomb. Faith always pushes us to resurrection. And the counterpoint is just as obvious. If we feel dead, then it isn't faith we're living by. We've gone back to works. We're locked in our works. Aptly named dead end works. We've gone back to the law and back to self-approval and back to our half-baked systems of merit and boasting. But it always feels like kissing and carrying a corpse. 
But this faith that Paul's calling us to, Romans 4, faith means that the life of the Christian is not about convenience. It has never been about convenience. We are saved for glorious inconvenience. The inconvenience of a shamed, sinful king having to go public and live in the forgiveness of his God. The same inconvenience where an old man and an old woman had to wake up in the middle of the night to feed their newborn. The same inconvenience that knocked a persecutor off his horse as he was going to destroy the church and it transformed him into a church planter. We were saved for glorious inconvenience that looks like that. That looks like having our eyes open to see the death that we easily settle for and easily settle into. It looks like having our hearts in Jesus' hands stirred up to hate the death that we settle for. It looks like having our wills charged and fueled to move resistantly against our deadness, choosing the life of Christ instead. This Romans 4 faith means that the ministry of the church isn't about maintaining, never about maintaining. The ministry of the church is about resurrection. Naming our deadness, pointing to our deadness, calling it what it is, calling ourselves and others to life. And if that's not what the church is about, then aren't we just standing at the mouth of Christ's open tomb, unimpressed, bored, Yawning. If that isn't what the church is about, aren't we ignoring his strongest, most beautiful move, the one that's supposed to fill the church? This Romans 4 faith changes our relationships. They're not about maneuvering and manipulating to get what we want because on our own, what we want are a thousand forms of subtle death. Our relationships are not about living together with an easy peace, just telling each other what we want to hear, but never having the courage to confront sin where we find it. But Jesus has given us to one another for another reason. He's given us to one another to fight against ingrained deadness, shared deadness, palatable deadness, and to call one another to dress in the life that Christ has won eternally for us, to call one another to grow more comfortable in our newborn skins. And the world, this Romans 4 faith changes the way we relate to the world. The novelist Graham Greene said, We are all of us resigned to death. It's life we aren't resigned to. How is it that in our world of hellish need, resurrected people have gone mute as the grave? Resurrected people have one message for the world. It's the resurrection that has been given to us. Resurrected people keep saying to the world, stop accepting death. Believe the justifying strength of Jesus to pry your tomb open. And with believing ears of faith, hear the saving voice of Jesus calling you out of your tombs of sin. And in Jesus the living, come forth and live. 
Our justification is a righteousness, a resurrection by faith. And resurrected ones don't settle for or play with dead things. The faith used to resurrect us moves us further away from death and further into living. So skeptics, do you need to be raised from the dead? The deadness of your sin, can you feel it heavy and stiff and leaden in your heart and in your head and in your veins? If you need resurrection, then believe Jesus, the risen Savior, who will raise you out of sin and into His life. Come and find me if you need to talk about it more. Come and find me if you need someone to pray with you. But don't leave silently, ignoring the problem. If you can sense, I need to be raised from the dead. When my mother was a teenager, she had a friend who was the mortician's daughter. And twice a year, the mortician would let his daughter and her friends have slumber parties in the funeral home. But there were certain conditions that had to be observed in order for all of this to take place. So, the big rule was the funeral home had to be empty. There could be no bodies lying in wait. So it was hard to plan for because admittedly death is not a scheduled event. The girls could be planning one of their short notice slumber parties and it could all be suddenly called off because there had been an accident on the highway or an accident out at the lake or something happened down at the farm. And the girls were pretty understanding because they knew death can easily interrupt life. Everyone knows death can easily interrupt life. But this is new. What Paul writes in chapter 4 has never been heard before. This is entirely unexpected. Nobody ever expected something like this. What Jesus has accomplished and what Paul proclaims is astounding. For our righteousness... For our salvation, for our justification, the inextinguishable life of Jesus has daily, hourly, momentarily, eternally interrupted our chosen death. And it's all ours by faith. Believe, dear church. And the doors to the resurrection will swing graciously wide for you. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds. And soften our stony wills. Allow us to see how deeply we love our deadness. And allow us to see how in sovereignty and gracious, truthful love, Jesus the Savior has called us away from our tombs to reside with Him in His endless life. And that life is seen now in the way we think, in the way we respond, in the way our emotions come forth from us. 
in our pursuits and activities. Now we are leaving death behind and being brought continuously along behind Jesus, the risen Savior, in the power of His resurrection. Allow us to see it more and more each day, more and more in our hourly fights against the sin of our flesh and the sin of the world and the sin of the devil. Allow us to see that we were saved by resurrection, for resurrection, justified in the triumphant rising of Christ. And now as resurrected people, how can we flirt and play with death? Graciously you've delivered us. Now graciously keep us and sanctify us and mature us and bear fruit in us. These are your works in us and not our works to boast in. Allow us to see more of these things taking root and showing themselves in us and in each other and for the lost around us. Break our hearts for the lost. Fill our eyes with tears for the lost. Open our mouths for the lost. Move our feet for the lost. And all so that Jesus' power can be seen in the world and His truth be lived by and His grace be known and His name be worshipped. Forgive us for being such casual Christians. And instead, oh Lord Jesus, we ask You to fill us with the vigorous life with which You emerged from the tomb. Now call us to life again as we eat and drink. We eat and drink to remember and believe, to be invigorated. We are no longer dead. We are alive in the strength and the power of Jesus the Savior. Mortify our sins with the bread. Call us to holiness with the wine. Fill us with joy by the whole table feast. Because Jesus the righteous is our righteousness. And Jesus the justifier has justified us. And Jesus the risen one is raising us. Now, O Lord, let it be seen. And as always, if you'll do this, you will have our thanks.